What's Underneath is a CastBox original produced in partnership with Studio 71. CastBox is the fastest growing, highest rated podcast app on both iOS and Android, where you can find all of your favorite podcasts. You can listen to What's Underneath wherever you get your podcasts, but we hope you'll give CastBox a shot and see for yourself. Hello and welcome to What's Underneath, the podcast that will inspire radical self-acceptance through empowering you to embrace what's unrepeatable in you. I'm Lily Mandelbaum, and sitting next to me is my mom, Elisa Goodkind. And we are Style Like You. In our new podcast, we are going to expand the types of intimate, unfiltered conversations we've been having in our viral video series, The What's Underneath Project. Each week, we will interview diverse nonconformists about their relationship to style, self-image, and identity. Being radically honest without shame and holding that honesty with compassion is self-acceptance. This is going to be a hard one for you to encapsulate your emotions about. Yes. <laughs> So we're here today with Damien Eccles, who is a gigantic hero in my life. He was incarcerated for 18 years and 76 days for a a murder that he did not commit. I had become aware of his story with the first of three documentaries called Paradise Lost. And the minute I saw the first one, which took place during the trial, I was riveted by the story and reading both of Damien's books, one called Life After Death. It is the most incredible inspiration in terms of understanding the depth of the human spirit and what the human spirit can overcome. The whole story just touched me so deeply and in a way that is very, very, very connected to Style Like You and to everything that we're about, Damien was wrongly accused because of a black trench coat that he had found in the closet of a house when he was very young that he was living in and that he was very happy and excited to own and was wearing it and wearing it a lot. And where he grew up, people did not walk around in black trench coats. Like everything that we're trying to do with Style Like You in terms of pulling the facade off and the judgments away and the fear of the other through style, I thought this was an absolute quintessential story for us to tell because how we express ourselves can be something that we're so afraid to do personally, but then we are also can be so judgmental and critical of other people. And in this case, to the point of doing something that is so heinously unjust, I have kind of a lump in my throat. It's really exciting when you meet your heroes. So thank you for being here. (laughs) Thank you for having me here. (laughs) So Damien, can you tell us a little bit about um, how you're feeling right now in in this moment and today? Yeah. Probably happier than I've ever been in my entire life. Um, Over the past six to nine months, I feel like I have finally started to come out of a lot of shock and trauma. Mm -hmm. You know, we we didn't uh, comprehend the level of destruction that was going to take place in my psyche whenever I got out. Mm -hmm. because we were so focused on me getting out Mm -hmm. that that was all we all we saw we thought you know you reach this point and you know we won it's over we didn't think about what comes after that the day that i walked out of prison something in me broke 
that's the only way I know how to describe it. You know, not only had I been in prison for almost 20 years, but I'd been in solitary confinement for almost the last decade of that. I lost a lot of things like facial recognition, voice recognition, things like that, because I didn't see human faces for, you know, any extended period of time for a very long time during very formative years of my development, you know, psychological and biological. I was still a child when I went in. Uh, so I, I didn't know that until I got out. I was really so deep in shock and trauma that, uh, I didn't even know who I was anymore. You know, when I was in, in prison, the day that I walked out of prison, I was doing magic for eight hours a day. Can you, can you describe what you mean by that? Ceremonial magic is, uh, it's my entire life. It's, it's what my existence has revolved around as far back as my memory can go, which is probably back to about six or so. It's uh, the Western equivalent of yoga in a lot of ways. It's a path to what in Eastern traditions is called enlightenment or awakening, but from an entirely Western approach. You use, uh, it, it would be like an amalgamation of Gnostic Christianity, esoteric Judaism, a lot of ancient Chinese Taoist energy circulation techniques, uh, the people who came up with the particular tradition that I practiced, uh, they started in England in the late 1800s. It was an order of uh, magicians called the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And their motto was the aim of religion, the method of science. They wanted to go into every spiritual tradition in the world, Hinduism, Taoism, Buddhism, uh, ancient Christianity, get to the core of the practices that are associated with these traditions, not the beliefs, not the dogmas, none of that. The actual physical, mental, energetic practices. Take those, refine them, combine them into something that had never been seen in the West before as far as like spiritual development is concerned. And when I was in prison, I actually received ordination in the Rinzai Zen tradition of Japanese Buddhism. It was the same tradition they used to train the samurai in in ancient Japan. I sat Zazen for hours, for years, and I probably got more out of ceremonial magic in months than I did Zen in years, just because it's more suited to a Western psyche. You know, it uses a lot of, of uh, like Christian and Jewish iconography. You know, things like uh, hexagrams, pentagrams, crosses, all these sorts of things. And that's because whether we like those things or not, whether we are completely and absolutely atheist or not, from the time we are born, if you grew up in America, those things had some impact on your psychological development. Whether it was, there's a like where I grew up, there's a church on every corner of every street. Or, you know, whether you're here in New York and you grow up in a Hasidic Jewish community your entire life. And then whenever you grow up, you, whenever you reach adulthood, you decide you don't want to be part of that life anymore. And you go and live a completely secular life. 
whatever your situation is in this country, these symbols, this iconography, these teachings have all had some impact on our psyche. So they are ideally suited to be vehicles for transmitting certain forms of energy and information. That's what magic is. The only way I can describe it is it wakes you up in a way that um, allows you to be completely and absolutely in the present moment, almost as a side effect of everything else you're doing. It's like an added boon. You, while you are going through the process of awakening, you are also learning not only how the mechanics of the universe operates, but how to impose your will on those in order to manifest the life that you want to live. Once you reach a certain stage in your development, it even says, as you pass through the grades of this tradition, you reach a point where it says, at, from this point on, the magician's job becomes to build his own universe. Did you dis discover this before being in prison? And then come to it while you were there as a means? I remember in your book, you talk a lot about it as a means of survival. I discovered the fact that magic existed for the first time when I was five or six years old. And it was just because, uh, you know, in my family, I have a ninth grade education. And that's more than anybody else in my family has. If you look back through my family tree, you're probably never going to find anyone who had so much of the high school diploma. So there wasn't a lot of great literature. You know, nobody in our house is reading Dickens or Tolstoy or any of that. The only thing people in my house were reading were either Harlequin romance novels or those really horrendous old school tabloids that had the covers like Bat Boy Founding Cave. You know, the ones that whenever you would handle them, your hands would look filthy whenever you'd put them down. Those. My grandmother was obsessed with those things. And she, you know, I always kind of jokingly, but it's not a joke, say that she didn't read these things in an ironic way. You know, she read these things because she thought, okay, if this, you know, if there's aliens in the neighborhood or whatever, we should be on the lookout for this crap. But in the back of one of these tabloids, there was an advertisement for a book. And I can't even remember what the name of the book was. Like I said, I was only five or six years old. But I can remember the gist of the article was something like, uh, want to learn magic? If so, send five ninety five off to this address and we'll send this book back to you. So I run to my grandmother and I'm you know, begging her, will you please get this? Can we please have this? At this point, I don't know what magic is. All I know is that when I saw that, something in me came alive i just knew to the core of my bones i wanted it i needed it you know but to us back then even six dollars that was a lot of money you know my grandmother used to have to do things like uh, go out and pick up you know aluminum cans off the side of the road uh to get school clothes for me and my sister so there wasn't money to you know spend on books so i learned that it existed but i had no access to it she the one that gave you the pillow yes yep I remember you had a pillow and the black trench coat. Am mm -hmm. I right? Yep. And she died while I was in jail waiting to go to trial. Mm. Yep. Oh, wow. Were you always, did you realize that you were different from, or did you feel that you were different from the people around you at that time? I think that realization came when I was probably in second grade. And I can remember it very, very vividly because I, I remember feeling horror. I, I can, and what triggered it was learning that people had invented an atomic bomb. 
I remember seeing something about it on TV, like watching this little, you know, documentary about it or something and thinking, oh my God, why in the hell did they think this was a good idea? And these are the people that are supposed to be running things. Mm -hmm. So I felt, to be honest, really, really scared from a really early age. I knew I was different in that way, but that was probably the full extent of it. And was the magic, um, I'm kind of remembering now, that was also part of what created the suspicion about you. But it, was the, it, was this, it was the clothing, the black clothing. Absolutely. They and actually, the magic. Yeah. They actually brought um, some of Aleister Crowley's books into the courtroom, uh, reading passages out of these books, uh, citing that, the, the prosecutor actually said that these things were proof that not only had I committed murder, but that it was proof that I had no soul. Wow. Do you remember, like, how you felt in that moment, like, hearing someone say that? Just kind of, once again, you know, it was just an extension of what I felt when I was in second grade about, you know, these people are fucking crazy. Mm-hmm. What kind of world have I found myself in? Mm-hmm. You know, people think that you have the right to say whatever you want to say in court. You have no rights in court. You know, it, it, all that is on TV. If you're not wealthy, have connections, something like that, you're just screwed. You know, I was white trash from a trailer park. Basically, the trial was a formality that they had to get through in order to send me to prison. I, I realized how in trouble I was again just because I knew that they didn't even comprehend what they were reading in court. You know, this was a book uh, written by a man. Um, this is a bisexual man in England in a time when that will get you thrown in prison. That is an imprisonable offense. He's writing about Tantra with both men and women. Number two, it's illegal to even write about sex in England at the time, so everything has to be written in code. So, you know, there's all these passages that he makes reference to things like he said he had sacrificed a child. What he's actually referring to in that writing is tantric masturbation. He had sacrificed the opportunity to have a child in favor of doing this energetic technique instead. Right. They don't know that. Right. These people have no clue what the hell they're reading. All they know is they have a book that's saying something about sacrificing a child, right. and they go bizarre. They're just in his state of hysteria and exactly. fear and fear of the other. And you, But what strikes me is how... It's like there's something really so intense and cosmic about you being five or six years old and seeing that advertisement and beaming so intensely into this very esoteric spiritual philosophy um, that is so foreign to the world that you're in and somehow that you knew that this was a world out there for you like, well it was a process you know it wasn't like an all at one time realization you know after i learned what magic was or that it even existed then in my teenage years i discovered that was about the time that witchcraft really started to catch on you know the whole wicca thing was exploding like crazy you started to go into you know bookstores and see it all over the place it was in libraries or whatever and i started reading all these books and i thought this is great just because all it is is like really really simplified ceremonial magic 
so what it allowed me to do was take, I mean, some of the stuff that I was trying to work my way through is written in a way that's, I mean, some of these names have, some of these books have nicknames like the, the black brick, just because it's as thick as a phone book, tiny print, bores you out of your mind. You're going to be half blind by the time you make your way through these things. <laughs> Wicca had taken all of that and stripped all of the complicated crap out of it and turned it into something really simple. So that appealed to me for a long time, just the simplicity of it. But my first love was always ceremonial magic. So when I started going into my 20s, once again, that was where I started to veer back to. And by that point, I was already in prison. So I had... How old were you when you... I was uh, 18 when I was arrested. I was 19 when I went in. And how old... And so you were 38 when you got out? 30? late 30s yeah late 30s 30s. yeah i'm early 40s mid 40s now so how many years has it been getting close to seven it'll be seven on august 19th and so you were saying at the very beginning in response to my first question of how are you feeling today that you've been feeling the happiest you have felt in your life in the last six to nine months and you were talking about trauma that you didn't expect to have had like what when you got out what has happened in the last six to nine months that has made you feel happier uh, it would, it, it's, and you know, it's not a word that I use lightly, but I mean this for me, it really was very literally a miracle. Uh, I got contacted by a woman that does a podcast in Boulder, Colorado. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't know who she was and I'd never heard of the podcast, anything else. And I thought, you know, it's going to be something about, I don't know, some prison thing or something. Um, and Lori says, no, it's actually like a, a, a spirituality podcast. Like this woman owns a company that publishes all these books on meditation and all this sort of stuff. So I said, okay, well, I'll do it. That sounds interesting. So we did the podcast. And as soon as it was over, she said, um, how would you like to do a book with us? And uh, my philosophy ever since I've got out has been sort of, I don't know how to do anything. So say yes to everything and then figure it out as you go along. (laughs) So whenever she said that, I said yes, even though I had not written anything since I'd gotten out. I lost the ability to write. I lost the ability to read. I would read the same page over and over and over and could not retain what I had read by the time I got to the bottom of the page. Um, I hadn't written anything. So I agreed even thinking there's no way in hell I can produce a book. But she. But you did produce these other two books. But in, yes, yes, that was while I was in prison. Yeah, those are all from while I was inside. And they're really, really well written and captivating. So that must have turners. been like really frightening to you when you oh, yeah. lost the ability to do that. Absolutely. When did that? When did you realize? Like, how did that? That was when you came out that you realized that. Yeah, but like, how did you realize? Did you? What Whenever happened? I sat down with an editor to like edit through life after death Mm -hmm. and she would say you know we're talking about this and she would say okay you said this right here so what i need you to do now is go back and write you know two more pages you know going more in depth into that and more in detail into that when i was inside i could sit down and just write like crazy like nonstop. once i got out that was gone completely so you would sit down and what would happen? You couldn't... It was like the hardest strain, the hardest struggle, and whatever I would produce felt like crap. 
mm-hmm. compared to what would flow through me when it was actually working. Mm-hmm. I, I thought it was wretched compared to the way I normally feel whenever whatever it was that writes mm-hmm. flows. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that happened that you were able to be so prolific when you were in and then suddenly obviously the brain does something we're uh, actually participating in a um, study right now where uh, they are trying to understand more about the long-term effects of solitary confinement on the human brain that's part of the reason why i will often forget what the hell i'm saying right in the middle of what i'm saying and i'll have to say what was i just talking about Mm -hmm. that happens a lot but i don't you know it's like i don't it doesn't bother me i don't particularly care because like I said I'm happier than I've ever been and to be honest it allows me to forget (laughs) things that I have no interest in remembering or that there's no point in remembering and that that contributed to a lot of the happiness but this woman I go to Colorado not knowing what the hell I'm going to do and she proposes this idea of doing the whole thing backwards she says you know why don't before you ever sit down and write go into the recording studio and just talk so I said, all right, I'll try that then. I went in there with no notes, no idea what the hell I was going to say whenever I walked in there or anything else. And I would spend about half an hour before I would start going through an invocation ritual for... It's still a little weird for me talking about these things publicly. Invocation rituals for a particular kind of angelic intelligence associated with the planet of Mercury. It's for things like eloquence, being able to convey your ideas to other people in a way that they're going to be able to conceive, understand. I would go in for half an hour before it was time to start, and I would start invoking these intelligences as hard as I could, praying with my whole fucking heart, just saying, help me. They would turn the recording equipment on. I had no idea what I was going to say. I would just start talking, and it came out. And it happened the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And then there was a book. So they took that transcript and gave it to me, and I was able to take that transcript. And when I did that there, that was the most magic that I'd been able to do since I got Mm -hmm. out because that went with everything else. It went with my ability to read, my ability to write, my ability to watch TV. You know, I couldn't do magic more than a few seconds. You know, keep in mind I was doing it for eight hours a day. Which is basically, basically a form of meditation when you say that? Yeah, it's meditation. And a lot of it is about energy, circulation, direction. Um, it's based on the premise that think of your, your mind as the steering wheel and your energy as the gas. And you don't use your own energy. You use energy you draw from outside sources, whether it be you know, uh, it could be nature. It could be, in my case, the thing that worked the most for me when I discovered them, and I never would have in a million years thought this was the case, it's angels. And I, ne- and I never would have thought that was the case because by that point, I had a real ax to grind against anything that even remotely smacked of Christianity. The way I saw it, those were the people trying to murder me. The mm-hmm. last thing mm-hmm. I want to be is part of their spiritual tradition or anything that comes even remotely close to anything they're doing. So that I had comes to, out in the film, in the first, in the films, a lot. I had to yeah. get over that, and, and what made me get over that was seeing how effective these things are. You know, that would be it. Would be like if I didn't get over that, it would have been like finding the most 
amazing remote control in the world that you can change the way you feel and change the way you think anytime you want to and saying, <laughs> fuck that. I hate this because it's made by a company I don't like and throwing it away. So I had to get over that. And when I saw mm. how effective this stuff was, that wasn't very hard to do at all. It's basically what got you through. That and Lori. Eight hours a day. That and Lori. Lori kept me right. physically safe. Physically safe so that I could concentrate on what I was doing. And when I was in prison, I did not touch this case. I didn't think about this case. People ask me questions about the case now. And I'm like, how the fuck would I know? Mm-hmm. You know, ask, ask the lawyer, ask Lori, whatever. I could not focus on that stuff in there. I would have went insane. You know, I was yeah. in I was in a living hell externally. The only thing I had control over was my own internal state. The last thing I wanted was that poisonous shit in my head mm. all the time. Mm. Can you describe the state the 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 conditions that you were in and then what you did? Like what what this meditation and this 8 hours a day, I remember it from the book. It it honestly gets to the point. I was in by the time I got out, I was in isolation 24 hours a day, 7 days a week with one exception. I was allowed to see Lori one day a week for three hours, she could come in. Other than that, I was in a cell by myself. And that went on and for... And this was because you were on death row. Right? Exactly. That went on for almost a decade. So the only thing I did 24 hours a day was read, studied, and practiced. Period. And you were allowed to have, like, books? and Like, what were you allowed to have within They couldn't... Room? Technically, you're only allowed to have three books at any given time. Mm-hmm. And then you have to give those three up. They would try to prevent me from getting... Like, number one, anything that said the word magic in it, they would not let me have a book that had Hebrew in it because they said it was satanic. But if it was something really complicated, like the one I was talking about a while ago, the one they call the black black brick, that they're going to look at that and they're going to, you know, these are people from the same trailer parks and projects that I was growing up in. They're not going to sit there and read this crap. They're going to look at it and think, man, I don't know what the hell this is. Give it to them. So that was the main way that I was able to practice, get these books, learn things. I also had several teachers while I was in prison. Uh, Harada Roshi, um, my Zen teacher, would fly back and forth from Japan to the prison. I had. Um, How did you find each other again? He was the spiritual advisor of another man who was eventually executed. Uh, a guy, he became a Zen priest. He was ordained a Zen priest on the day of his execution. Uh, they carried out the execution after it was over. The only person who's allowed to be with you when you die is your spiritual advisor. No family, no friends, no anybody. So they allowed him to come back onto death row after the executions and tell everybody, you know, what the guy's last words had been, how he died, you know, what he had ate for his last meal. And we just started talking whenever he came to my cell. He gave me his address and we started writing and he became my spiritual advisor. I also had a lot of other teachers, too, though. I had, uh, you know, a teacher um, in Wicca, a woman named Dorothy Morrison. She's got, you know, quite a few books out on the subject. So I was really privileged to be able to write to somebody like her. I had a ceremonial magician, a chaos magician, a guy named Stephen Mace that we used to exchange like 10, 15 page letters. You know, I was incredibly fortunate that those documentaries were out so that when I would reach out to people, a lot of times they would know who I was and be willing to write me back and correspond and teach me things that they might not have been Mm -hmm. in other situations or circumstances. We're all so caught up in our, you know, like in our minds every day, and you're in the ultimate 
place where you have to deal with your mind and like get it into a better place. Most people, whenever they think of what in new age circles is they're calling an aura in ceremonial magic, it used to be called a sphere of sensation. When people think of that now, they think of like an oval shape around you. And that's not technically what it is for most people. For most people, it looks more like heat coming off the highway in the distance on a really hot summer day. The only way it holds that oval shape is with training. And the reason you want it to hold that shape is because it provides a natural barrier against other people's energy, against other you know places you go that may not be so energetically good for you. Um, it also does things like uh, improves concentration. What you're doing, in, a, in essence, is several times a day you're invoking these angelic intelligences because by coming into contact with them, it forces our energy system to rise in vibration to come closer up to theirs. Now, that's only temporary. You, it, the stronger you get, the longer it'll last. You know, somebody in the beginning may do it and it only may only last a few minutes. Somebody who's been doing this for years may do it and it may last several days. So you have to keep reinforcing these things, doing these invocations again and again and again. What happens through repeated contact is your aura starts to crystallize. I don't know why, but it forms like a perimeter that oval shape around it that you don't have to concentrate on it's always there it always holds its shape a side effect of that was without even thinking about it without even practicing it without consciously putting any effort to it whatsoever one day i was sitting there and i realized oh my god my mind's not going forward and backwards and chasing its tail around i'm just sort of here without consciously making any effort to be and that's when when i realized that was possible when i saw that was happening it made me really really excited to see what else was going to happen you know what's what's going to be the next thing so i would put even more time more effort into it it really is like going to the gym or lifting weights right. you know you have to cut if you want to keep growing stronger you have to keep increasing the weight keep increasing the repetitions it's the exact same thing on the energetic level of reality we have to keep flexing those energetic muscles to make them stronger and that's what i was doing for eight hours a day and that was for how many of the years like of being in prison was that like such an intense practice for you i would start and stop the entire time i was in mm -hmm. but it got the most intense the last year that i was in prison mm -hmm. and what happened in that last year was Lori and i both decided every single day we're bo both going to dedicate in addition to all the other energetic work we're doing, the magic work we're doing, we're going to dedicate at least one hour a day to create, dredging up as much energy, as much chi, whatever you want to call it, as we possibly can, and then stamping it with this intent. And we both memorize it so we would say the same thing every day. We would say, may I be home, free from prison, living happily with Lori. May it come about in a way that brings harm to none and is for the good of all and in no way let this reverse or bring on us any curse. We would say that every day and push all of that energy into it. Within one year, exactly what we were saying was what happened. Mm. And we, in hindsight, we realized how we were wording. We didn't say, let me get proven innocent. We didn't say, let them catch the person who actually did this. We didn't say, let me get a new trial. We just said, let me be home free from prison. And it was a loophole that got you out. Exactly. I had never heard of this thing before. It's called an Alfred plea. What it means is 
you are legally allowed to maintain your innocence while also accepting a guilty plea. The entire reason that it exists is so that the state can't be held responsible for what they've done. That's the only reason that mm. this plea exists. First, they said, will he take a guilty plea? And my lawyer said, no, he's not going to take a straight guilty plea. He's not going to say he did something he didn't do. So then they came up with this thing that I'd never even heard of. Wow. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please subscribe and give us a good rating so the powers that be can keep this podcast going. We should be Yeah, yeah, I have a bunch of questions. So first of all, just we know who Lori is, but can you just explain who Lori is for the listeners who don't know? And and, and for everyone, I just want to say at the very beginning, I said I've read both books and I didn't mention the second book, which is all about, which are these... Oh, forget it. Like, Love Letters Between Damien and Lori. Big, thick book. And if you want to, like, just lose yourself in that, it's it's amazing and it's super inspiring. But so listen, the, the, the story of Lori Damien will tell rather than me. I met Lori in 1996. She lived here in New York at the time. She was an architect working for the city. And that was the year that the first Paradise Lost documentary came out. So you were in prison. I was in prison. I had been in prison for three years by that point. I was locked up in 93. Mm -hmm. So in 96, she goes to see this documentary. It's a really small screening, and it just so happened Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sanofsky were both there doing like a Q&A after the screening. They were the, dire they were the directors. Mm -hmm. She said it stuck in her head for days afterwards until she sat down and wrote me a letter and just said, if there's anything I can do to help, uh, what can I do? How can I you know, make this easier? What? We started writing back and forth. The book you were talking about, when we sat down to, to edit the book, we had about 3,000 letters that we had to go through and get it down to about 100 of Lori's and 100 of mine. So we were writing a lot. She eventually moved down to Arkansas. Did, I can't remember the order, whether she moved to Arkansas before we got married or if we got married after she moved to Arkansas. After. After? I will tell you that it's after. <laughs> so, <laughs> so. I distinctly remember. <laughs> so, we wrote each other back and forth for about two years before she moved to Arkansas and we got married. We, well, yeah, well, about so, three years. So, you got married in prison? Mm -hmm. Yes. It was like 10 years, mm -hmm. right? Before, we got married in out. 1999. She yeah. stayed, well, for 10 yeah. more years. Yeah. She, she said, she always tells people, she thought, okay, I can give a couple years to this, you know, getting him out of prison. She said she had no idea it was going to take as long as it did and be as hard as it was. Uh, Lori did 90% of the work on my case. You know, whenever they're trying to find DNA matches, she was the one out going through people's garbage looking for cigarette butts to try to match DNA to. She was the one doing the actual ground footwork. Whenever somebody would want something researched, she was the one researching it. Whenever they needed something delivered to someone, someone talked to, whatever it was, someone hired, she was the one who did it. Over the course of the time that I was in prison, when Lori started working on the case, she raised somewhere in the area of $5 million. And every single penny of it went towards things like DNA testing, private investigators, hiring attorneys, all of this kind of stuff. To what do you attribute that, if you attribute it to anything? And what did it feel like for you to be loved and cared for like that? 
what I realized through practice was that every single thing that I was going through was designed to wake me up. I was in the absolute best scenario that I could possibly be in to make as much progress as I did as quickly as I did. Thanks to the situation I was in and thanks to Lori. Because if it wasn't for Lori, I would not have been psychologically or emotionally safe enough to be able to devote my time, attention, and energy to doing what I was doing. She literally saved my life multiple times. When you're in prison, you have no voice. You have no power. These people can beat you to death if they want to. The only thing they care about is the fact that you have someone on the outside world watching out for you, taking care of you, that loves you. That's the only thing that prevents them from treating you in a way that less than human doesn't even come close to articulating. So can you talk about like um, a day in your in the life of you in prison and in, in your mind while in prison in like when you had your mind the least controlled or the least enlightened or whatever you want to call it and then versus a day when you you know towards the end that you were saying where you were just like you felt like you had sort of mastered an average Something. day, I mean, there is no average day, really. You get up at 2 o'clock in the morning. That's when breakfast comes. They give you breakfast at 2 a.m. because they want to get as much slave labor out of you as they possibly can. They want you in the fields hoeing and working. The guys on death row. Oh, don't do anything just because you're talking about, I mean, you had people in there that had murdered their entire family. But the rest of the prison has to work. And it could be anything from, well, a lot of it's food. You know, they, they raise their own, like, say, spinach which is almost completely inedible, you know, because they're not going to spend a lot of time and energy cleaning stuff like that. So a lot of times there's like grasshoppers, crickets, whatever, boiled in this crap that you're supposed to choke down. So that's what they're out hoeing, planting, whatever the hell they do with it. Uh, so you eat breakfast at 2 o'clock, and you eat um, lunch at 10.30, and you eat dinner at 3.30. That's prison. That's death row. And are you ha- and your meals are being given to you in your... There's a slot in-, in the door. They Oh, it's a solid steel door. There's a slot they open long enough to put your tray through, and then they close it again. So you're never, like, obviously never going to a cafeteria of any kind no. or anything like that? No. So was there a transition period from resistance to acceptance? Uh, it got to the point where I didn't even think about the fact that I was in prison a lot of times, not for days at a time. It was the last thing on my mind. It reminded me of uh, whenever Timothy Leary went to prison, and at one point some of his friends went to visit him, and they said, we've got a plan to break you out of here. And he said, no, you can't. I've got too much work to do. That's what it started to feel like to me. You know, I'm in a cell. Too much spiritual work to do? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. So I wasn't even thinking about prison. Uh, What was the question? No, that's the question. That's a good answer. (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, the question was, what did you ever resist? Like what, like the, the, the beginning, you know, at the beginning. Oh yeah. Whenever you first go in, uh, I guess the reason that I even got into Zen for about the first two years I was there, I grew progressively angrier and angrier. I would wake up every, I can barely even remember it now. It's like trying to remember something you saw in a rerun from a movie you saw when you were eight years old or something that's the distance of it it's like it's not even the same person but i would wake up in the morning angry 
Mm-hmm. You know, you see a prison guard and you automatically hate them. You don't even know what their name is. All you know is these are the people responsible for torturing you 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. That's what most of the people there degenerate and devolve into. They focus on stuff like that all the time. And the next thing you know, they go insane. Right. And For me, I just found my purpose and I focused on that with all my might. Which is really like the metaphor for life. That's exactly what it is. You know, there's this whole thing going around now. I, I keep hearing it everywhere. People using the word authentic, authentic, authentic. Mm-hmm. It's almost got like this trendy mm-hmm. thing. But that's it's a, actually a really good word. <laughs> because what it means to me now and this was part of the healing process. I didn't understand all this whenever I got out because I had no social interaction skills, none of this kind of, you know, I don't make small talk, chit chat. You know, people say, what's up? Like, what the fuck does that even mean? Right. How, you know, how do I, I hate that, that question? Like that, what's up? Or I said it the other day to someone, I said, I'm so sorry. I just said that what's new. Mm-hmm. It just fell like onto the ground. I was just, I said, I'm so sorry for asking that. Or, it's like the dumbest question. Even some like people say, well, how do you feel with my fingers? That's what I usually say. <laughs> what were we talking about? So we were talking, you were, we were, um, <laughs> we're on wait. the same wavelength because once you've you had talking- menopause, you have exactly the same, <laughs> you know, so like we're completely <laughs> communicating. It's like, this is how I feel all the time. Um, well, you were explaining how, um, okay, well, um, there's a few things. So you were talking about how you didn't evolve into the anger, anger that made you in, like, you know, into insanity. You found your purpose. Then my mom said that was a metaphor for life. Then you said, oh, yes, the authenticity thing. Yes. Authenticity. Okay. That's what it was. Yeah. What it was for me, I think what that means, most people don't really know what their authentic self is. Mm. They're in a, a, a state or a process of trying to figure that out. And that's what I had to go through whenever I got out. I didn't know, which sounds like a crazy ass thing to say, you know, but I had never had, for example, sushi. So in my mind, that sounds disgusting, you know, <laughs> not not necessarily for the raw fish. But when I was a kid, to me, rice was pop. You know, we were so poor that a lot of times the only thing we had to eat was rice. So to me, when I have rice in my mouth, I have poverty in my mouth. So that put me off on sushi until the first time I tasted it, and I thought, oh, my God, what the hell have I been missing this whole time? And then I ate it every single day until everybody around me wanted to puke. (laughs) I went to France and did not eat one single item of French food the entire time I was there. I found a sushi place and went there every single day. But I, I didn't hang out with you. <laughs> I didn't realize that my that. authentic self <laughs> likes sushi. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what living is, the metaphor for life, is figuring out what your real authentic self is in every single situation and circumstance. Because we've been programmed in ways we don't understand we've been programmed. You know, we've been right. taught, have 2.5 kids, get married, mm-hmm. get a station wagon or a minivan. Mm-hmm. You know, make sure your TV's one inch bigger than the neighbor's. Chase other people's dreams. Yes. Yes. And people have fallen for that until they've almost become like rats on a treadmill, falling deeper and deeper into debt, deeper and deeper into despair, deeper and deeper into hell. I'm curious the relationship between like discovering it when you got out, but also you obviously went to like the depths of your soul and yourself like in there. So Lori said when I was in prison that it was like I owned my world. You had found your purpose. You owned your world this intensely spiritual experience and, and um, that you were destined to discover 
within yourself for your own fulfillment, for your own path, for you know, that is your journey, your purpose. And then you come out, I can imagine, it makes total sense to me now. Then you come out and you almost have to do it all over again because you're in a, now you're in this I world. was a different person. Coming out was being reborn. It was death and resurrection. The old me died the day I walked out of that prison, or it started to die. The actual dying, I fought tooth and nail. I held on as long as I could because ego doesn't want to change. You know, that was... It, it very, very much feels like dying. Like you think I'm not going to survive this process of, you know, ego disintegration. Because your ego had gotten so, in a way, com- had it gotten comfortable with like the version of your world that you had sort of mastered while you were in there? Or is that what you mean? Or What was dying when you came out? Yeah. What I thought of as me. That's the only way I know how to describe it. That's the only... Uh, way I can even come close to articulating it. Mm-hmm. There were times whenever I would see myself disintegrating, coming apart like like somebody throwing a handful of dust into wind, and you're horrified by that, just as horrified as you would be by having fingers cut off or toes cut off, seeing parts of yourself just gone. But slowly I started to realize through the horror that there's something else here. There's, if I were disintegrating, then who the fuck is watching this process happen? Right. But it was slow. You know, it wasn't like an all at one time realization. It was a slow, slow thing. And before it could happen, everything that I thought I was, everything I thought I knew had to be broken. That's sort of like the the meaning of the, the tower card in tarot. Right. I had to be completely and absolutely broken so that I could realize what I truly am. I could not stop. I could not even start putting the pieces back together until I figured out what piece went where. What do I want my life to be and what do I not want my life to be? Because I did not know. When I got out, I was in such a deep state of shock and trauma that either Lori or a friend of ours that lived with us had to be with me pretty much 24-7. I had, it was almost like I was an invalid. Mm -hmm. So it was, you know, in a very real way, I wasn't even making conscious decisions about where I'm going to go in a day or what I'm going to do in a, in a day. It was all dependent on like this group dynamic enmeshment type thing because I was scared Mm -hmm. all the time. I can still remember the first time I went to a movie by myself and how weird and kind of terrifying it was. So where did you where did you live like when you first got out? When I first got out, mm-hmm. we had absolutely nothing. You know, not even I didn't even have a suit of clothes to change into. Uh, the only thing that saved us was um, Peter Jackson, the guy who directed Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. and his wife Fran Walsh. She was part of the writing team that wrote it. They had an apartment here in New York. This is how I ended up in New York. They had an apartment here, and they said, "We're not using it. Why don't you go stay in this apartment until you figure out what you're going to do." Uh, where you're going to go, whatever. I never in a million years thought I would live in New York. My idea of New York was like a Woody Allen movie. You know, I would say, I was like, who the fuck wants that? That's, that's, that's hell. That's crazy. You know, if I would have, if, if, if instead my perception of New York would have been, 
you know, seeing something like The Warriors, that old movie from the 70s, I would have been like, okay, let's go check this out. That might be a little bit interesting. <laughs> but I was expecting Woody Allen, New York. And I get here, and I had no concept of what this place was like. Doors blew off of hinges for me. For the first time ever, I felt like nobody is looking at me. Nobody gives a fuck about me when I'm walking down the sidewalk. And I can understand why this would make some people feel lonely, but I think all that time in solitary confinement stripped whatever gears in me there are for things like loneliness out. To me, this just felt felt like immediately where I belonged, where I fit, where I loved. Within a month of getting out, I remember being on the train and... We were going, me, Lori, and the friend that was with us, we were going to Coney Island and we went past that cemetery. Was it Greenwood? And I just remember looking at it and I said to Lori, if anything happens to me, you have to make sure that I am buried here. Hmm. Don't let anybody take me anywhere else. I have to be buried here. This is home to me. For a short period of time, People would say all this stuff to me like, uh, you know, you should go somewhere soft. You should go somewhere easy. You should go somewhere, you know, where you can just rest and recuperate and, and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll try this. So we, went, we moved to Salem, Salem, Massachusetts. We stayed there for a little over a year, and I thought I was going to lose my mind <laughs> by the end of that year. By the end of six months, I thought, I have eaten at every single restaurant in this town. I have walked in every single store. I've probably seen every single person here. I could come out here and walk for hours every day, and I am not going to see one single thing that I have not already seen. Is that really what I want my life to be? We immediately sold the house and moved back to New York. But it was one of those things where, once again, it was like magic taking care of us Mm -hmm. because we were able to sell the house for close to, because of all the work and everything we had put into it for like a third more almost than what we had bought it for. So it allowed us to survive for the next year in New York off of the house from Salem. So it was like, this is what I mean. Like while ago, when you were asking about things being orchestrated, things construed, it's like the synchronicity, every single thing in my life. that's what's so inspiring about your story and you. And it's so clear to me that when you're saying all of this, that you've literally been carried here. Like yes. you've been carried to New York and look at you. I mean, your style, your tattoos, your whole, everything that you're wearing. Like this is a city where no one's going to like you're, 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 you're complete, like you're completely accepted. Whereas where you were born, you were, so clearly an outcast Mm -hmm. and so you you ended up where you belong you have been through so much and yet you understand it to be your path you accept it and it's therefore brought you to where you are now where you are saying that you're the happiest you've ever been but i don't think even now it's it's almost not that i accept it because that's like looking at something and almost still feeling some sort of negativity about it mm. in some way mm-hmm. and saying, okay, that's, that's mm-hmm. always going to be there. I just, for me, when I look back on it now, I am grateful. Mm. I am thankful. Wow. I am appreciative. 
and I, when I think about, you know, people think I had some kind of horrible life or something. Right. I didn't have a horrible life. You know who's got a horrible life? People on fucking Tinder. Or, or, or <laughs> you know, totally. the, the, the thing that totally. the people that are searching, you know, they're out there like they just they don't even know what the hell they want. They just know there's a hole in my life. There's a hole in me somewhere and I need something to fill it, whether it's. A, a bigger TV or whether it's more sex or whatever the hell it is. They just think they need something. Sneakers. Yes, sneakers, whatever <laughs> the hell it is. Yes. Phones. And whereas yes, you, phones. Yes. And where and where? how does that oppose to, like, how you feel? Each one of us is here to do something very specific. Happiness comes from figuring out what that specific thing that you're supposed to be doing is and dedicating mm-hmm. yourself to it with your whole heart. Mm-hmm. That's what everything I went through brought me to understand. Right. You know, and not just the prison stuff, but, you know, all the way back from childhood, you know, poverty. And, you know, when I was born, my mother was 15 years old. My dad was 16 years old. Uh, Barely more than children. Well, they were children, not Mm -hmm. even barely more than children. So they give me to my grandmother. She raises me as my mother, but we were dirt poor you know people laugh about white trash living in trailer parks when i finally moved into a trailer park that was moving up in the world for us you know all of a sudden we had running water and electricity and stuff like this you know i would see stuff on tv about people who went to college or whatever and to me that may as well have been the same thing as alice in wonderland like it was that same level of unattainable yes like, that's not fucking real. That's on the Cosby show or something. It's not the real world. You know, everybody on TV's got, you know, two parents that live together and they all grow up in the same house. And to me, that was probably as a child everything I wanted. All those things that I was seeing in those TV shows, you know, all these perfect families, I thought that must be the most amazing fucking thing in the world to have that. So, yeah, there was a lot of mental anguish and, you know, stuff like that back then. But in hindsight, when I look at it from this vantage point, from this perspective, if I had to choose whether to do it again to get to where I am now or to have had that life that I thought I wanted, even as a child, a mom and dad that are married and a dad that wears polo shirts and khaki pants and you know, a, a mom that makes sure you're not eating too much sugar, you know, stuff like that. I thought, you know, that's what, yeah, that's living there. That's what life is supposed to be. I would have chose that back then. In hindsight, to me, those are the people now that had the horrible lives, the ones that never had to figure out who the hell they are, what they want, and now they feel lost and miserable and they're looking for things to fill those holes. When did you get um, all the tattoos? All after since I've been out. I since mean, I had little out. scribbles and scrabbles since I was like 16, but they were horrendous little things that had pretty much faded away with time. Mm-hmm. And when I got out, I thought, I do not want to get a tattoo. Why, why in the hell would somebody do that to their self? Sit there, go through that level of pain. Pay that, you know, you're paying money to have somebody hurt you for something <laughs> that's marking you up in some sort of way. And we went we, we went to L.A. at one point, and we were staying with Johnny Depp, who did a lot of work on the case. And mm-hmm. 
anytime we're together, nothing constructive is going to happen. And he wanted to go get a tattoo. And I thought, I don't want to do this. But, you know, he, he really wants to go do it. So I said, all right, let's go do it. He wanted one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The second we got the first one, <laughs> before it was even finished, I was already thinking about what I wanted to do next, what the next one I wanted was. And for me, once again, it's all tied into practice. It's not about just accumulating random, meaningless things. You know, most of what is all over my body, I have various iconography, languages, everything else from ancient Egyptian to Hebrew to Chinese to stuff I created myself. Uh, But it was all for specific purposes. A lot of what you see are the names of like archangels, angels, angelic choirs, different versions of names of divinity, things like that, translated into symbols. Because a lot of symbols, what 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 symbols are basically about, our subconscious mind does not speak in words. Our subconscious mind understands pictures. It understands images. So the way you fire a concept that you want to enact or that you want to manifest in the outside world into your subconscious mind is by using some sort of picture. So that's what I started using tattooing for. It was something that I wanted to incorporate in my life in some sort of way until it began to feel like I was wearing a suit of armor. And that's still what it feels like. Mm -hmm. It's also like a language that is time, like a, a language that goes through all of time and all, you know, just that's not just an earthly language or just mm-hmm. a language that we know how to speak. Oh, there's all sorts of things. There's even, I even have some things that are in Enochian, which, you know, things like that were never even actually spoken languages. It was, there was, some of these stories mm. are amazing. John Dee and Edward Kelly, they were court magicians to Queen Elizabeth. They got together and they did one of them. John D was really good at invocation. Edward Kelly was really, really clairvoyant. So together they made like this perfect team and they would do all these invocations for all these angelic intelligences and came up with an entire language that they say is the language spoken between angelic intelligences themselves whenever they're inscribing this thing they didn't even write it straightforward they wrote it backwards because they said to write something in this language even just writing it straightforward is to invoke that energy of whatever it is just you know so i have things in that language written on my body that i wanted to manifest in some sort of way every single aspects of our lives are meant to be art not just the canvas Mm -hmm. not just the song you wrote not just the sculpture you made everything you do is supposed to be an expression of who you are when you get dressed in the morning you are conveying a very specific kind of energy make sure that that energy is you Mm -hmm. you know don't wear a red tie just because somebody tells you that's the power color that's you know that's a lot of it is you and it's so hard it's it's really hard when it comes to clothes well because of marketing yes exactly you have to really dig we're being told we're being we're being brainwashed to hate ourselves so that we buy things like it's not coming from an authentic place because it's because there's so much greed and that's exactly what we're on a tear to undo because at the end of the day the reason it's so important that act of self-love when you get up in the morning with everything that you do, including getting dressed, is because if we could all come from that place, we would have a much more loving and peaceful world. We'd be happier people. I mean, there, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's a very, you know, we would, we, would, we would be, we would not fear the other. Yes. Do you, what is your biggest fear now? 
I have no idea. I don't, honestly, I don't think about fear very much. I think that's a huge part of what makes people so miserable is they think so much on fears and they constantly come up with new things to fear. <laughs> you know, it, it, they think in a way where it's not even, they don't hold a picture of themselves in their head as being whole and healthy. They think, oh man, I hope I don't get sick this year. Everybody's got the flu. It's going around. Every, you know, I got to touch this subway pole. I better get some hand sanitizer. The whole time they're going through this litany of crap in their heads, they are holding an image of themselves sick. They are feeding energy into it. People think that disbelief is the opposite of faith. It's not. Fear is the opposite mm -hmm. of faith. When you have faith in something, what that means is you're feeding energy into something that you want to manifest. When you sit around constantly drudging up random, fearful things, you know, I could come up with a million things that I could potentially, the human body in itself is a time bomb waiting to go off. There's a million things you could be scared of. What are some of like the, your dreams of like things you want to do and ways you want to spend your time like now that the, the, the sky's the limit. Most of, I, I honest to God, feel like most of my dreams I've now fulfilled. Mm -hmm. That was one of the things about Boulder and what made it so special to me after I went in there and I got that book out, then it came out of me, the, the magic book. Mm -hmm. I felt like I just accomplished a huge part of what I was here to do. Mm -hmm. And once that happened, then a lot of the hunger was gone out of me. I guess the only real driving hunger that I feel now is to share with other people the techniques that saved my sanity, that kept me going, and that allowed me to eventually become what I am now. Have you ever connected with Oprah? Mm -mm. But that, that you say, I, there's only two television shows that I watch, period. I feel like this is a, inevitable. And. Oprah's Super Soul Sunday is one of those Exactly, shows. and I was listening to Carolyn Miss this morning. Do you know who that is? Mm -hmm. I mean, you are saying the exact same things as these other very high spiritual teachers in our society, like the highest, who she's interviewing. Marianne Williamson. I know who that is. Carolyn Miss. You have to... I was listening this morning. She's written like 10 books. It's all about anatomy of the spirit. Her first big one was anatomy of the spirit, but it's every single thing you're saying right now. I was, she was, they were talking about this morning. I was listening to this morning about it's exact. It's the same. I mean, you're saying it's all the it's same, the same thing. message. Different I, paths. In the, I mean, we're going to put it out. Uh, Oprah. Yeah. Different like, paths, is, same destination. Oprah will. Yeah. Oprah mm -hmm. will get this out there. Like in the way that, this is, this is inevitable. What that show made me realize when I listen to people on it, and I don't remember things like names a lot of times. You know, for me, it's more about the energy, the feeling I mm -hmm. get from things. So we'll have that on just in the background because mm -hmm. I like the way it makes the house feel while we're working. Mm -hmm. What you realize from watching that show or what I realized is this, no matter what you want to call it, whether it's Buddhism, whether it's Taoism, whether it's ceremonial magic, whatever it is, it's all just like a different approach mm -hmm. to the exact same destination mm -hmm. to the point where I swear at one point I almost felt like I had been ripped off a little bit like I thought son of a bitch this is the same thing as Buddhism it's mm -hmm. just using you know different awesome. symbols different you know 
slightly different paths, but it's the exact same thing. It it's all goes the same place. It's a journey to yourself. Yep. Basically. That's exactly what it is. It's yes. It's That's it. Yep. It's a journey to yourself, which is like, what are we doing here? Yes. What are you here for? Which is all that matters. So what does self-acceptance mean to you? Not watering yourself down. One of the things I'm learning now, I feel like I've and I don't want this to sound arrogant or egotistical at all because that's not the way I mean it. I'm just trying to say it as like an expression. I almost in a way feel like I've dumbed myself down my whole life in order to be able to form relationships with people, like to be able to communicate with people. And it's led me to be in relationships, friendships, whatever, with people that I would not have necessarily wanted to, but was so scared of being my real, once again, back to that authentic self thing that I was willing to cramp myself down and do whatever I had to do to keep going along. For me, self-acceptance now means if people don't get me, they don't get me. I'm not everybody's cup of tea. I know that. Some people will like me. Some people won't. Some people I'll get along with. Some people I won't. For me, self-acceptance is seeing that, accepting that, being fine with that, and being myself so that people that would appreciate what I am, will be able to see me, and I can have relationships that I enjoy instead of, you know, the dumbed down ones that weren't fulfilling me anyway. That is so beautiful. You, you, you I'm, I just, <laughs> your people are the other people that we interview. They're your friends. Hmm. They're your friends. And that's and, and because I feel like you and I, I feel the same, like I don't people don't get me. And um, <laughs> I just was determined to go find all the people that I connect with, um, <laughs> which is part of the drive to do what we're doing is just I refuse to sit back and say that it's this one sort of type of person that's acceptable to be a certain way. I'm going to I'm going to show you all the ones that are you know, not that way and how fucking awesome they are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway, thank you so, 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 so much. Thank you guys for having me, thank for doing you. this. It's just actually been fun. You are so, it's just the feeling of love. Like you are just, when you say that you're not everyone's cup of tea, I'm just going, well, not really quite sure about that because <laughs> you just exude love. And so I don't see how that wouldn't melt thank you. everyone in your path. <laughs> Honestly, so thank you so. Thank so you now guys I'm like, so we need to interview Lori. Yes, I was thinking that the whole time. I was thinking that the whole time. We hope you were inspired by this episode. Until next week, that's it from me, Elisa, and me, Lily. If you agree that facades separate us, and being radically honest brings us together, help spread the movement for radical self-acceptance by sharing this episode and subscribing to our podcast. You can also watch our videos by subscribing to our YouTube channel and following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook using the handle at StyleIQ. That's the letter U instead of the word U. And check out our book, True Style is What's Underneath, The Self-Acceptance Revolution, on Amazon or at a local bookstore near you. We can't skip ahead to a happy ending or live inside a photoshopped image or an Instagram filter. There's no finding oneself when glossing over the truth. I'm Kyla Coleman. You might know me from Cycle 24 of America's Next Top Model. I have a brand new podcast called Not So Glamorous. On this podcast, I'll be taking off the eyeshadow, trading in my heels for some comfy shoes, 
and I'll tell you all about what happens before, during, and after the runway. Each week, I'll be covering a different topic in the world of modeling on Not So Glamorous. Find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. See you soon. Hey, I'm Sapphire. Want to hear something scary? If you love getting the chills, make sure to tune in to the Something Scary Podcast. Come join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folktales, and ghost stories from my friends, family, and listeners like you. Like stories about skinwalkers, powerful sorcerers with the ability to change their appearance into another animal so that they can kill more easily. And hearing about them draws them right to you. Oops. Subscribe to the Something Scary Podcast in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.